I asked to sing this song. Uh, I'm glad you folks, you, you know it. I, I, I wasn't sure it was in the, in the hymn book um, because the text that we're going to look at this morning is the text upon which this hymn was based. And uh, we're going to sing, um, I think, one of the verses after the, at the close of the services as, as, a, as a conclusion, as a, uh, just a reminder of these truths to, to drive this home uh, with us this morning. But I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 61. I wasn't sure who would be here this morning with the rain and the wind. Um, I don't know how sturdy Californians are these days, you know. I know in Arizona we had this, you know, a lot of people would be uh, hunkering down in their, in their house. So uh, um, it was interesting. We had a really good group here last week. And uh, so we, we, are, we, are, we, are, we are weather challenged today, so, so, but, it's, but it's good. And I encourage you, if you can, be here tonight. I, uh, a message I want to preach tonight is about the exchange the, between Elijah and Elisha. And it's a message I've entitled, Passing the Mantle, which I think is very important for churches in the midst of a pastoral transition. Uh, some uh, five basic lessons I, 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 I get from that, from that passage that I think is just very important for churches to understand as they are in the process of, of transitioning from one pastor to a next. Uh, it's important to remember some, some really basic lessons. And, and what an example it is in the exchange between two men of God, Elisha, Elijah, uh, the great prophet, and Elisha also a great prophet, who Elijah seems to have mentored and then literally hands the mantle, the actual literal, we actually get that phrase, passing the mantle, uh, from that story of Elijah then leaving the mantle that he carried with him to Elisha. But this morning we are in Isaiah chapter 61, and... Um, if, if you've not noticed, <laughs> there's not a lot of rejoicing going on today. Um, there's a lot of angry people here in this world. And there are sadly a lot of Christians who just do not reflect the joy of the Lord. Uh, recently in my own personal devotions, I was going through the book of Philippians and the theme, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice, rejoice evermore, rejoice in the Lord. Over and over again, we find us as believers being challenged, reminded of the need to rejoice. But oftentimes that's not the case. And we'll explore a little bit of that, the reason for that this morning. But let me begin by just asking you a couple of questions. Have you ever had a dream, a great desire that was fulfilled? Maybe it was a dream job. Maybe it was that perfect vacation spot. Maybe there was something that you only dared to dream you might accomplish, but one day you accomplished that dream and you saw your dream come to reality. Sometimes dreams come true. Other times you find those dreams are really nightmares. Uh, maybe the plan, you plan that perfect vacation and the perfect spot and you get there to find out that it rains every day. There is a reason why 
the tropical islands you see on vacation posters are so green and lush. It's not a desert. It does rain in those spots, okay? So, and it rains a lot. And, uh, you know, sometimes you, you go there and you, you have your picture of that perfect vacation photo that you saw on the poster or on the internet. And, you know, they never, they never show you those places where it's pouring down rain. Um, you get there and find it's not quite what you had planned. Uh, maybe the hotel is below your expectations. They had a really good marketing campaign, a really good photographer who made it look like it was twice the size that it really was, or things were really a lot prettier than they really were. Uh, maybe the, your favorite food makes you ill. Uh, but when a dream is fulfilled, when a hope is accomplished, the Bible says it's sweet to the soul. I grew up in southern Ohio, far away from any tropical beaches, beautiful ocean waters. And to me, when I was young, the most tropical place I could imagine was Hawaii. And early in our marriage, Leslie's mom uh, asked if we would like to go with her to Hawaii. Her dad did not like to travel, so we were glad to take his place. As a Pope Catholic, of course I'll go. Uh, so. We arrived at nighttime, I still remember it. Uh, we, the place was advertised as having lush gardens and peacocks that roamed the ground. Um, I am one of those annoying early risers, especially on vacation, because I don't want to miss anything. And so I was up early, and sure enough, the forests were green, the flowers were in bloom, the water was beautiful. I still remember that was a dream uh, that was realized. Now that's a light and very frivolous dream. But imagine you are a Jew living in Isaiah's day. Life is hard. Uh, you are surrounded by enemies as your nation is being threatened to literally be destroyed. Ungodliness has enveloped the entire land. You are about to be carried away into a foreign land maybe tortured, maybe killed. Uh, I, I read just about a week ago a biography I picked up at a bookstore of a, a Jewish man. He, he is, I think he is still alive. He may have passed away recently, but uh, he was a young boy during the Holocaust in Poland. And it's his story of how he survived through the years of, of World War II and, and Hitler's purge of, of the Jews than how he ended up in Israel and still faced hostile persecution as he became a Christian. Uh, it's just a fascinating story. It's, it's hard to imagine living in that type of environment. We are so, we're, we ought to be so grateful uh, God has spared us from that. But um, imagine you are there as a Jew and you know this is, is on the horizon and the, the, through the Spirit of God, the prophet looks through history to a day when the Messiah returns and his kingdom is established, when the enemies are destroyed. And he writes in Isaiah 61, verse 10, he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Now, this is a millennial passage, okay? It looks forward to the return of Christ to establish his kingdom. 
it is yet future. And yet its focus is Israel on the restoration back into the land, but it also features the, both advents, both comings of the Messiah. In other words, it's there, to us, it's looking back somewhat, uh, at least the first part, because if you remember, the first two verses here were quoted by Christ in Luke chapter 4, uh, verse 18. Jesus quoted this passage with one distinction. He says, the spirit of the Lord is, uh, of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And Jesus stopped there. The next phrase says, and um, to... Uh, the day of vengeance of our God. That day had not come. When Christ had come, it was the first. He was saying, I have fulfilled this. I'm here to fulfill this. The second coming of the Lord is, uh, is yet to come. That, will, that has not yet happened. So this passage, the prophet is looking forward to the, both of these events were, were still future. And when that happens, he says, he, he, he says in verse 3, he says, I will, I will turn, uh, I will give them beauty for ashes, verse 3. Uh, he says, I will repair the old waste cities and desolations, verse 4. Verse 5, strangers shall feed your flocks. Uh, verse 6, you shall eat the riches of the Gentiles. Verse 7, for your shame you shall have double. Uh, verse 8, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Verse 9, their seed shall be known among the Gentiles as the seed which the Lord has blessed. All these wonderful things are going to happen when the Lord comes. And yet here you are, a Jew living in the days of Isaiah, and the immediate future for you looks very dark. And against this backdrop, this prophecy of the Messiah's coming, at the conclusion of this, in verse 10, the prophet says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Now why? Why can he say that? Is it because he has newfound wealth? Is it because of coming ease or fame or popularity? Well, none of those things are going to be true in the immediate future for him. But these are the things people look to to give them joy. If I just have all the money in the world, if I have all the, the wealth, the ease, the fame, life's easy, then I will be happy, I will rejoice. None of those things bring happiness. None of those things bring joy. Some of the most miserable people in the world sometimes are people who have obtained great wealth. And because they expected that wealth to give them the answers to their problems, the, fill the emptiness of their life, and it doesn't. And then they get to a point, I don't know what to do now. The, the prophet says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. And here are three reasons he gives in verse 10. Okay? He says, because, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Secondly, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Using the terminology or the symbolism of, of clothing or garment or a robe, 
the prophet is saying three things here. He says, I rejoice because, number one, I have the robe of salvation. Number two, he's covered me with the robe of righteousness. And then the third, which is a little complicated in, in because of the language, he's basically saying he has decked me like a priest or has given me the robes of priestly service. I'll explain that when we get there. But those are the, that is the source of joy for a believer, the robe that Christ gives to us. And it is a theme, it is actually a symbol that is used all the way in the New Testament, even to describe believers around the throne of God, God being clothed in his righteousness, being clothed in robes of righteousness, being, being clothed in new garments that he provides. So that, that's why this song, that's why I asked to have this song him sung this morning. What a great exchange it is to exchange our unrighteousness for his righteousness. We are found in him. His righteousness we receive. So let's go back and look at these three ideas this morning. Why, what is the source of our joy? First of all, because you should find joy in the robe of salvation. That is that is for us the most basic garment that Christ gives to us. For Israel, their rebellion had led to a very strong rebuke from God. God had said, if you go back in Isaiah 1, you don't need to turn there, but he says they were a people laden with iniquities. They had forsaken God. There was no soundness to their flesh. And we could go on and on. God had warned them of impending judgment. He speaks of the imminent Babylonian captivity in chapter 39, but assures them that he still loves them and they will return someday from captivity and one day fulfill his promises to them as a people. Isaiah's prophecy, his vision given to him by the Spirit of God, revealed to him the truth of Israel's salvation, of their restoration in the land that God had given them. Now there is... And we need to understand this. As Gentiles, we don't always understand this. There is a great connection between the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem. It's what has caused so many Jews to desire to return to their land since becoming a nation. Um, I've had the privilege twice now to visit Israel. Uh, on both occasions, I've seen this, especially on the first occasion, I really saw this and noticed it firsthand. Uh, towards the end of our trip, we had spent several days, we'd been to the north of Israel, we'd gone down south. Towards the end of the trip, most tour groups, they'll, they'll spend the last couple of days actually in Jerusalem itself. And we had three Jewish uh, guides, I guess you could say, on the boats. We had Craig Hartman, who is the founder of Shalom Ministries, who had organized the trip for us. He was with us, a Jewish believer, a real estate attorney from New York, uh, excuse me, tax attorney from New York who got saved and, and, and now is serving the Lord in, in Jewish missions. We had uh, our guide who was a Jewish believer, one of the oldest Jewish families in Israel, uh, one of the first Jewish guides, Christian believer, uh, Messianic guides uh, in Israel, a man who knew them absolutely was amazing, knew everything frontwards and forwards about, about uh, Israel and, and where we were. And uh, then our bus driver, who I'm not sure was a believer, uh, but was from northern Israel and uh, was a Jewish man. And as, as we approached Jerusalem, 
they go, you go through a tunnel from the highway that you go up, and they start playing, some of you know the song, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Well, you know, it starts off really slow, and the bus starts going really slowly through that tunnel. And they've got this time. I mean, they've done this a number of times. They've got this time. So just as you come out of the tunnel and you see Jerusalem for the first time, over the speakers in the bus, the music is playing, Jerusalem. And it's an emotional, it's a very emotional thing. What struck my attention was our three Jewish guides. Even though they have done this scores of times, you know, over and over and over again. When they saw Jerusalem, they just burst out in tears. And they are hugging each other, and they are just, tears are running from, down their face, and they are rejoicing. The connection between the Jewish people and Jerusalem is, is just an amazing, amazing, amazing thing. So for the Jew, when this promise is made here about how he is going to restore them, that was a, a glorious thought to think of Israel's salvation, their redemption. But I would remind you that for us, the church, the Gentiles, the church today, this truth should not be overlooked because the robes that are used to describe the saints of God are also used to describe the saints of God. Uh, Revelation describes the church, the redeemed in heaven, uh, rejoicing around the throne of God, described as wearing white robes, uh, indicating we had come out, they had come out of, of this world. And even as others, uh, saints who are saved during the tribulation, martyrs who are killed during the tribulation, are there, again, wearing white robes in the throne of God. And just as the believing Jew rejoices in the salvation of his people, so also we as the church should rejoice the salvation of God. He has given us robes of salvation as well. We have exchanged those robes of unrighteousness for his righteousness. We're saved. You know, we use that term a lot. You ever think about what that term means, saved? We're saved from the power of and the hold of sin. We talked about that one when I, we were going through the book of Romans here back in November. We went and talked about how there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. What a, what a joy that is. We've been made new creatures in Christ. We are, we are saved from the punishment of sin. We don't deserve heaven. What do we deserve? We deserve hell because of our sinfulness and, and our rejection of Christ and our just rebellion against God. But we are given heaven as our home instead. We have eternal life. Just think about the power and the glory of being saved. Those of you who have been here for a while, you may remember, I used to tell stories about my roommate in college. He, he was a crazy Cuban uh, who, I mean, he was crazy. <laughs> I thought he, he had come to, he had come as an immigrant to the U.S. He landed in New York City. Uh, there he got involved in drugs and gangs and just about any type of vice he could. Um, but there was back in, maybe some of you even are familiar with this name, uh, there was a man by the name of Tom Harris back in the late 60s and early 70s uh, likewise, a man who had been saved out of the drug world uh, and got saved, went to uh, Bob Jones to study for ministry. He went back to New York City 
to reach the down and outers. And he had a street ministry, and the ministry among the drug addicts and, and uh, people who were trapped in all kinds of sin there in that city. And my roommate, Michael, Mike, had heard him preach one day on the street corner, and Mike got saved. And, um, and later went to BJ to study for ministry. And was, went back, I think still is, in New York City uh, with a, in a Hispanic church preaching there, uh, reaching people for Christ. And I, I remember Mike ended up as my roommate one year, and I, I remember Mike would talk about his salvation, and what, I mean, his, what he'd been saved, how he'd been saved, and his life before he was saved. And he's telling me about what life was like there in the streets of New York. And um, I remember asking him one time, I said, did you get help? you know, to get off the drugs and other habits you had formed. I mean, and I don't know that I said this, but I was implying, did you go to some kind of therapy, counseling, self-help program? I never will forget him just looking at me as only he could. He says, bro, I got saved. And what he was saying was my life was changed. And I'm not saying that believers don't oftentimes need some help and guidance when coming out of a life of habitual sin, but reality is, bro, you got saved, okay? You got saved. Do you understand you are a new creature in Christ? And that is a cause for great rejoicing. It's a cause for finding great joy in Jesus Christ. It would be worth just taking the time to think, are, are you rejoicing in your salvation? Do you pause from time to time just to thank God and to think about, wow, I, he has given me the robes of salvation. He took the, the robe of sin. He took the, the garments that were unclean and unworthy, and he has exchanged them for his righteousness. Uh, you, you may not be what you should be. We are not all we could be. But if we are in Christ, we are far away from what we would be if it were not for Christ. He's given us the robe of salvation. If that, if that does not excite you, then maybe you were never saved or you have forgotten that you were purged from your old sins. But Peter warns in 2 Peter 1, he said that if we don't grow, don't add these things to our life, we might come to a point where we forget we were purged from our sins. We'll lose the understanding, the appreciation of that. That brings us to the second garment, the picture he uses here. We should find joy in the robe of salvation, but also we find our joy in the robes of righteousness. Now, most commentators think that this was an outer garment that was worn over the other garments. Revelation 19.8 uses this symbolism to describe the righteousness of the saints. Fine linen is the righteousness of the saints, the scripture says. And God is saying that symbolically he was going to adorn Israel with the robes of righteousness. He says in verse 3, if you see the last phrase of verse 3, that the planting of, or, or, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. God was going to make them righteous. Now, we should understand that there are two types of righteousness that are described for us in Scripture. There is positional righteousness, and there is practical righteousness. Positional righteousness is where God declares us to be innocent. 
Our positional righteousness is found through faith. Abraham believed God and God counted or God imputed it to him as righteousness. In other words, in, in, on God's book, on God's account, he took faith and he, it, because of the faith, he then credited to Abraham and he credits to us his righteousness. Now, it does not mean that we become sinless. It does not mean that we become perfect. But it says here that in verse 10, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. It doesn't mean he took away all of my unrighteousness, but he, he covered my unrighteousness with his covering. Uh, Psalm 32 1 says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. He covers our unrighteousness with his righteousness. And when you trust Christ as your Savior, you're putting your faith in him, and his blood covers your nakedness before God. And you have his righteousness imputed to your account. You are exchanging your works of the flesh, which the Bible says are filthy rags, and are exchanging it for his perfect righteousness. Hebrews, we've talked about Hebrews and, uh, and I'm talking about Abraham this morning in Rick's Sunday school class. Talks about the story of Abraham, and it's a story of faith. God told him to take his son, his only son Isaac, and offer him at Mount Moriah, where many believe the temple once stood. And as Abraham obeyed God, God stopped his act of obedience and drew attention to a lamb caught in the thicket because God had provided a lamb for Abraham. And God has provided a lamb for you and for me, and that lamb is his son, Jesus Christ. And through the blood of that lamb, our sins are paid, our sins are forgiven. It cannot be earned. It is never deserved. It is only accepted by faith. And because of that faith, we have his imputed righteousness, this positional righteousness before God. It's the only way you and I can stand before God is in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Secondly, there's also practical righteousness. The garment here, we understand, is like, was like an apron that adorned the priest, the priest's garments. Righteousness adorns the gospel of God. This as you know, this is just a part of living by faith. His spirit bearing witness with our spirit. We are the children of God. We walk in faith, and as we are led by the spirit of God, we do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We, we need to understand that God has given us the robe of righteousness. We have been declared innocent by God. And what God has forgiven, he has removed as far from us as the east is from the west. And therefore, our lives ought to be lives that are lived, we are admonished to walk worthy of the Lord. Practical righteousness is as we seek to follow God, we seek to, to serve him, we we, we want to please him. Sometimes Satan comes along and he tells us, well, you know, remember, he's the, the accuser of the brethren. He tries to defeat you by his accusations. And he will tell you, well, you're not worthy to serve the Lord. You're a wicked sinner. I know what you're thinking. I, I saw what you did. God sees that. 
You're undeserving of God's goodness. And Satan whispers that in your ear. Tell him, well, praise the Lord. You're right. Because my sins are under the blood of Jesus Christ. I have been given the robe of righteousness. Therefore, we do not need to be defeated, but we can rejoice greatly in the Lord. So he has given us the robe of salvation. He's given us the robe of righteousness. He's also, thirdly, given us the robe of priestly service. Now, I need to explain this for a moment. In the English, it says here, as a bridegroom, the end of verse 10, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. The Hebrew scholars, and I am quick to tell you, I am not a Hebrew scholar, but Hebrew scholars tell us that this is a word, the word decketh is a word that is used to describe priestly service. It is a verb form of the noun Cohen. If you've heard that name Cohen, people call it Cohen. It's the word used for a priest. Uh, if you know someone who's Jewish and they're named Cohen, they probably are from the tribe of Levi. Uh, they may not know that, but that's probably the, the, their heritage. It's a word that is used 23 times in the Hebrew Bible, each time referring to priestly service. So this usage is the most unusual, but it seems to be saying that, the, that he clothes us, clothes us with the ornaments of the priest. Just as a bride adorns herself with jewels, so he, he adorns us with the clothing of the priesthood. So why is that important? Well, to Israel, God says in verse 6 that you shall be called the priests of the Lord and ministers of our God. In the New Testament, the church is called priests and kings unto God, a peculiar priesthood. So there is a, 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 a usage of this idea, the symbolism here of the Old Testament priesthood that is used to describe us as believers today as a part of his body, the bride of Christ. What is the significance of that? There's two, there's two important aspects of that. The first idea of the priesthood is access to God. No longer do we approach God through some human intermediary, but we have access to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 1 and 2, by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And by faith we have access into this grace wherein we stand. We do not go through a human priest. I was, just this morning I was reading in my devotions the book of Leviticus. If you were here, was it last Sunday night? Boy, it seems like ages ago. Uh, but last Sunday night, I talked about how to study your Bible. I talked about the reading through your Bible. And we, we talked about using the Bible. Uh, one of the methods is using the five-day reading. And I, I talked about how sometimes those readings seem to coincide with each other. My reading this morning did that uh, because I was in Leviticus. And most people go, Leviticus, oh, Leviticus. You know, all these sacrifices and all these... But it, it was fascinating because it was talking about Nadab and Abihu, who were the sons of Aaron. After Aaron had made some, uh, went in and made sac uh, sacrifice, had burned the incense on the altar, the special incense that had great instructions, sp very specific about which incense was, how it was to be made, how it was to be burned, all this. Um, after Aaron had made that, Offering It says in the very next chapter, now 
Nadab and Abihu went in and offered strange fire before the Lord or a profane offering before the Lord. There's a lot of debate as to what that was. Some think it probably was the fact that they did not use the prescribed um, incense. Uh, probably Moses would have had that and um, somehow they did not get the, they were just trying to do what they had seen done and did not follow the instructions. Whatever it was, we know it wasn't what God had ordered. It wasn't in the, it wasn't in the, in the fashion that God had described it. And by the way, there's an important footnote for that. There's a lot of people who think, well, it doesn't really matter what I do as long as we're just worshiping God. You know, it doesn't matter what you do, what you say, how you worship God. You just worship God in your own way. Well, you can worship God in your own way. But God said there was a prescribed way to approach him. And Nadab and Abihu approached him apart from that, and they were killed by God. The whole thing is fascinating. It, actually, if you go on in there, then the, the instruction uh, talks about how the, that uh, then God forbids uh, the priest from drinking any alcoholic beverage uh, in there, any wine the priests were not to have. So many think maybe they were drunk. Maybe they did not offer the use the right in. We don't know what they did, but they, they approached God in a way that was not considering himself to be holy. God says in that passage, I am holy. You must keep in mind that I am holy. Now, we come to the New Testament. It's reading Hebrews chapter 4. And the Bible says we have a great high priest who has made access, given us access to God and who knows what we are going through and who aids us in all that we do and understands our sufferings it says, therefore, come boldly before the throne of grace, that you may obtain favor and find grace in times of need. So today, as the church, we enjoy and are admonished to come boldly before God, before his throne, but it is in the, through the person of Jesus Christ. It's because he has given us not only the robe of salvation, and the robe of righteousness, but he has given us the robe of priestly service in the sense that we have access today to God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I've shared with you some of the stories as I've traveled overseas and been in Hindu temples and seen people go through great pains to uh, buy little bits of coconut or bark or whatever else maybe being offered there so they can offer that to this priest sitting in front of some hideous idol as their means of access to God. We don't go through a human priesthood. We, go, we are priests before God, and therefore we have access to God. If you wear the garment of salvation this morning and the robe of righteousness, you have access to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You not only may come boldly before his throne, you are exhorted to come boldly before his throne. You don't have to go to your pastor. No, it's great to have your pastor and other Christians praying for you and, and getting the joint effort of other believers. But my prayer on its own does not have any more efficacy, does not more any more powerful than your prayer because I'm a pastor or because I, I'm, I stand up and preach. Our 
Our prayer is heard before God. Our access to God is through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And we need to avail ourselves of that. That ought to cause us to rejoice. But secondly, the other aspect of priesthood is service. We are a nation of priests. And as a nation of priests, God expected Israel to serve him in the millennium. As a royal priesthood today, God expects for you and I as his church which he has bought with a great price to serve him. And frankly, that's what the Christian life is about. Service to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. My life and your life should be a sacrifice of praise. Uh, I love a, down in Arizona at Tri-City, our, our bulletin every week says, ministers every member. Somehow we get in our minds that ministers of Jesus Christ, so that's those who are the paid staff or salaried or called to special ministries. But the fact is, all of us have been called to serve Jesus Christ. We are all called to be ministers, every member. And our life should be a life of service. And we can minister to one another here in the church uh, throughout the week. We minister to the lost. We, we it should be seen in all we do. It could be in the, within the confines of the church or it could be out in, living in the world in everyday life. But we should be serving him, doing what we do in service to him because we wear not only the garment of salvation and the robe of righteousness, but we have been given the priestly garment as well. Which means we have access to God and it means that we have a life of service for God. So I just ask you simply, what are you doing in service to the Lord with your life? How much of your life is directed at serving our Lord? Why did God save you? Sometimes people say that. Why did God, I don't know why God saved me. I don't know why God left me here. Well, he's left you here to invest your life as long as you're here to serve others, to serve Christ through serving others. Isaiah followed this. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Amen. This, this, is, this is really exciting stuff for us. He's given us salvation. He's given us right, his righteousness. He's given us access to him and opportunity to serve him. Sometimes people look at serving God. Oh, I have to do this. You know, I have to go to church today. I have to. What a privilege it is to serve the Lord. What a privilege it is to, to be able to worship him. What a privilege it is to be able to live for him. Now, sometimes these garments are misunderstood. And let me give you an example from the Old Testament that illustrates what I, I mean, mean. Remember the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, whose father gave him the coat, the robe of many colors. Did everyone get all excited because his father had given him these robes, this robe? Joseph, that looks so good on you. Oh, I'm so glad you can be, you know. No, they were very angry with Joseph. His brothers were. Why was there such a reaction to the robe? Let me suggest you three reasons. Real, real simply. Number one, the robe showed his father loved him. It, it really did. It, it showed really even a special love for him. Now, we can debate whether or not his father was wise enough, wise in giving him that robe and showing that favoritism, but, but it demonstrated his, his love for his son. 
Secondly, the robe showed a continuing relationship with his father. That this was just not a passing thing, but this was an ongoing relationship. And thirdly, it showed his future claim to his father's inheritance. Being given that robe kind of made him the, the special son. Now, sometimes the world reacts to the robes Christ gives us in this very same way. They are incensed when we indicate that the Father loves us. Who do you think you are? You think God loves you? You know, you, you, God loves you more than me. You think you have some special relationship with Him? Well, as a Christian, yeah, we do know God loves us. We we do know we have a relationship with Him. And we do know that we will inherit the riches of Christ in heaven someday. And oftentimes the unbeliever sees us and looks at us and the peace that we have and the relationship we have and the hope that we have for eternity and, and think, well, you just think you're better than me or you think, you, you know, that's not right. Who, who gave you the right to do this or be this or... Why do you think you're going to go to heaven and I'm not going to go to heaven? But the believer who understands his robes and what they mean will not be boastful or proud, but will rejoice in God, his Savior. And unlike the robe of Joseph, the robes of Christ are available for all who will accept them. I ask you simply this morning, are you wearing the robes of Christ? It's one thing for us to sing his robes from mine, but are you still clinging to your filthy rags? Are you discouraged, depressed, defeated, though you claim to know Christ? You need to look into the mirror of God's word this morning. Look at the robe Christ has given you. Understand that he has saved you, he has declared you righteous, he has given you the joy of serving him. No wonder we should desire his robes in place of ours, his robes from mine. Let's bow our heads in prayer. And in a moment, we're going to sing once again that hymn, his robes from mine. But I challenge you to think this morning, search your heart. Are you here this morning? Do you know Christ as your Savior, first of all? Do you, do you know that you've exchanged the robes of your garments, which really, in his sight, are filthy rags for the robes that he has provided for you. Are you covered? Is your iniquity, is your sin covered by his robe of righteousness? If not, I challenge you this morning to search your heart and use this as a day to settle that issue and come to Christ. But I think most of us here probably would profess to know Christ, are you rejoicing in the robes he's given you, that robe of salvation, that robe of righteousness, that robe of priestly service? You have access to God. You have the opportunity to serve him. You have an opportunity to use the life he has given you, the time, the days, the hours, to serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. If you've not exchanged your robes for his, I encourage you this morning uh, to quietly this morning before God surrender your robes.